Welcome everybody to the Soma Podcast. My name is Zach. My name is Rob. And we are two guys interested in all things uh, theological diversity. And today we have a special episode we have here in studio with us, uh, Dr. Sanjay Merchant. Uh, I guess we could say in studio, but it's actually in your office. Yeah. Um, so, Dr. Sanjay, you are the Associate Professor of Theology here at the Moody Bible Institute. Right. Uh, how long have you been I've been here role? since 2012, um, and uh, this is my second academic position. I taught at a school in Arizona for a few years. Okay. Uh, was that also a theology role, or...? I taught in uh, the uh, School of... Christian studies, they called it, which is something like theology, and I taught philosophy there, and I do that here, too. Okay, yeah. so theology and philosophy, right. kind of your forte, if you will. Right. Okay, um, so we wanted to talk to you specifically today about the doctrine of the Trinity and uh, just the general weirdness that comes with defining that. Yeah. Um, so I guess we'll just kind of start it off that way. What is the Trinity? Some people will point out that the word Trinity doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible. Um, oftentimes, uh, we encounter, say, a Jehovah's Witness at the door who will point this out. And uh, Christians who also claim to believe in the Trinity will sometimes note that that word isn't in the Bible. It comes from the very early church, a uh, term that they used was Trinitas, to encapsulate this idea that God is somehow both one and three. And the reason that they thought that God was somehow both one and three it's because the Bible seems to teach that, strangely. And so the Trinity is actually a grouping, I think, of three distinct biblical teachings. Um, the first clear and, uh, and distinct biblical teaching is that there's just one God. So if you were to read the Bible cover to cover, if that were possible, um, in one sitting, and uh, had never been exposed to the Bible at all, you would walk away with the... With the uh, clear notion that there is only one God, or at least the Bible teaches that there mm -hmm. is only one God. There can't be more. So um, some of the places where that's most clearly emphasized would be um, in Isaiah chapters, you know, in the, in the 40s, 42, 44, 46, they repeat some of the same things where God speaks through Isaiah and says, I'm the only God, there is no other, there have mm -hmm. been no gods before me, there shall be no gods after me. Um, I'm the only God, I'm the only Savior, there is no one like me, I have no equal, there's no one else of his species. Mm. And so um, that's not the only place, um, the very famous Shema um, we yeah, find in the Old hear, Testament. Hear, O Israel. Right, yeah. we find in Deuteronomy, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, there's one God. Um, 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says there is one God, the Father, and one Lord Jesus Christ. So if we're to go about counting gods, there's only one. That's the first biblical teaching that's relevant. Um, the other biblical teaching that's relevant is that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all equally addressed, titled, and regarded as God. Hmm. And so this is where it gets a little bit more controversial, but I think with regard to the Father, there's no doubt Jesus comes preaching and teaching, um, telling people about his Father who is in heaven, everyone knows that he's speaking of the one true God of Israel. Mm. Everybody gets that. For example, in John 5, they know uh, plainly that he's speaking of the true God when he says, you know, my Father uh, this and my Father that, and they say, well, you're not saying our Father. You're not speaking as a mere human. You're saying that you have this special relationship to him. Like, Zach, like you would speak of your Father. Yeah. If I knew your Father, I've never met him but I might say something to you about your father. Well, 
if it's not something that you agreed with, you'd say, mm -hmm. well, he's my father. I know him better than you. Sure. I have this privileged position. Um, you can't say those things about my father, which I take to be untrue or something like that. And so Jesus is taking this attitude, and they recognize that, and they say, you're making yourself out to be equal with God. Well, why is that? Because um, if he's literally, in some sense, I mean, some real kind of metaphysical sense, your father, then you would be the same thing. I mean, you're yeah. a human because your parents were humans. Yeah. Um, and so Jesus is saying, he is my father, which is to imply he's the same sort of thing. He's divine. Mm. And so it gets a little bit more controversial there, but, but it seems that the apostles and New Testament writers regard Jesus as every bit as divine as the father. They say that he's the creator of all things in Colossians chapter 1. Um, um, he has the power to um, forgive sin. Christians call him Savior, and we can only call God Savior. And then finally, the Holy Spirit is regarded as God. In Acts chapter 5, um, Peter rebukes Ananias and Sapphira for lying uh, to the church, and uh, he says to them, you haven't lied to men, you've lied to God. And then in the next breath, he says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Sometimes people take the Holy Spirit to be an it, a force, mm -hmm. a power, but the Holy Spirit is very personal in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit guides, leads, trains, is grieved, is sinned against, is lied to. Um, and so the Holy Spirit um, is also regarded fully as God. And then the last piece, the last piece uh, or, or distinct teaching that we find in the Bible is that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in some sense distinct. Mm. They're distinct. So the son goes off to pray to his father who is in heaven. Um, if he were just going off to talk to himself and mumble, you know, not to pray to another, but to mumble to himself quietly, that would be pretty deceptive. Mm. You know, Jesus is really lying to his disciples. When he says in the end of John, I'm going to send another, I'm going to send someone else who has all the power and authority to continue on God's mission of salvation to the world, but it's someone else I'm sending, the Holy Spirit. If he were lying to them and really he intended to come back as wind or as tongues of fire, uh, that would be very deceptive. <laughs> yeah. So Christians read these things and said, aha, there's one God. The Father, Son, and Spirit are the one God, and the Father, Son, and Spirit are not the same. Mm. So in some sense, there are three, and in another significant sense, there are one. And so that's the doctrine of the Trinity. Wow. So within that, um, how would you then differentiate the Trinity from polytheism? That's an important question. Um, there's a couple different ways you can go with trying to understand the Trinity. Imagine a triangle in your mind and those three different teachings of Scripture representing each one of the sides of the triangle. So you've got one side that says that God is one, another side that says the Father, Son, and Spirit are the one God, and a third one that says the Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct. Um, if you emphasized the distinctness and the full divinity of the three persons, but really didn't emphasize the oneness of God, you would end up believing that the Father, Son, and Spirit were three different gods. Now, Christian theology has almost never softballed the idea that there's only one God. Uh, Christians have been unrepentantly monotheistic from the beginning. And it was almost thought, it's so sure that we're monotheistic that no one's going to claim to be a Christian and believe in more than one God. That's never going to happen. Yeah. I mean, we felt very sure about that. So it was rarely ever defended in the history of Christian theology and apologetics that Christians believe in one God until the 1830s and the advent of Mormonism, you finally find a legitimate group of people who say we're Christians and we think there's more than one God. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't happen before Mormonism. So um, 
early on in the church, this was a question, though. Um, a very famous uh, early theologian by the name of Gregory of Nyssa, um, living in the fourth century, uh, Gregory writes a letter to a friend called On Not Three Gods, and he takes on the question that you just asked. We say that the Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct and they're all divine, but how is it that we say there's only one God? So he takes on, again, he takes on this question, and he says, um, here's how it is. Um, it's true that the Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct. We're not going to downplay that. We're not going to imply that Jesus is being misleading when he says he's going to pray to his Father or he's sending the Holy Spirit. Um, we're not going to um, deny the divinity of the Son. We're not going to say the Son isn't really God with a capital G. He's God with a lowercase g, meaning he's a really high creature. But there's only one almighty God with a capital G. Uh, we're not going to say that. That's what Jehovah's Witnesses say today and what the ancient Arians said. Um, we can't deny that Jesus is fully God. We can't deny that the Holy Spirit is fully God. So imagine the Father, Son, and Spirit the way we would imagine um, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. This is what Gregory says. Mm. Paul, Silas, and Timothy are three men, and they're all in union. They're all Christians. They're all advancing the same gospel. They all work together. Okay, good. That still sounds like polytheism, right? <laughs> yeah. How are they one? And he says, just start thinking in that way. Now let's press it further. Let's agree that they all share humanity. There's something in them that makes them equal and the same. And he took hum the, hum the humanness in them to be literal. Mm. It's not just a way we perceive them. They literally have something in them that makes them the same. When you see three horses or a herd of horses, they can be look very different. One is... You know, I don't know how much horses weigh, but 500 pounds? Is that sure. about right? That sounds... 800 pounds? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not a horse time. expert, okay. whatever okay. it is. <laughs> so let's say you've got a 500-pound creature that's brown, mm -hmm. yeah. and you've got an 800-pound creature that's white, and you've got a 900-pound creature that's gray. And they're, they all have very different shapes, different ages, different colors, but we recognize that they're all horses. The ancient philosophers would have said what we're recognizing is something in them, namely hoarseness, that's mm. very real. It's the stuff that makes horses horses. Yeah. Well, these ancient philosophers, they took that idea quite literally, and they said there is something in all of them, in Paul, Silas, and Timothy, that makes them human. That's called humanness. Now, in God, we find that the Father, Son, and Spirit all have something in them that makes them divine. That's called divinity. But divinity works differently than humanness. Humanness can be broken up into parts, so you have so many billions of humans now. Divinity can't be broken up into parts. It's one stuff. So the unity of the Father, Son, and Spirit, he says, ultimately at the end of that little letter to his friend, he says, imagine it's more like three statues in a, made of uh, molten gold. So imagine melted gold um, and three statues, three sort of human forms emerging out of the gold. We wouldn't ask how many golds are there. There's one pool of gold that flows through all of them, and they all share the same pool of gold. And you can mentally imagine these statues sort of distinguishing themselves and then maybe like melting back together. If you can do that, he says, that's kind of what the unity of the Father, Son, and Spirit is like. They're mm -hmm. distinguishable, but they share the same exact divinity. We're three men sitting here, and we all have humanness in us, but we're different parcels of humanness, different little broken-off pieces. In the Father, Son, and Spirit, you can't break off pieces of divinity. It's inseparable. It's simple. Mm. And so um, the Father is everything that the Son and Spirit is. 
the Son and Spirit is, or the, the Son is everything that the Father and Spirit is. And so if you can sort of mentally imagine them melting them together, this, this sort of breaks our thinking. You know, yeah. we, we realize our thinking breaks down at some point, and these theologians would say, well, that's okay, because we're thinking of God. So if we can get close, that's good. Mm-hmm. But don't expect to be able to get all the way. Hmm. So is this oneness of Father, Son, and Spirit throughout Scripture articulated clearly, or do you have to kind of dig deep and do your research to figure that out? That's a good question as well. Um, uh, it might depend on who you ask mm-hmm. as to whether it's articulated clearly. I take it that it's quite clear. Mm-hmm. It's quite clear. Um, unless Scripture is at various places contradicting itself, one could make that claim. I, I wouldn't make that claim, and I don't see any reason to make that claim, but um, among those who read Scripture holistically, who take it all, all to be Scripture, it's, it seems to be the overwhelming consensus that the oneness of God is clear. Now, again, Mormons would be an example of a contemporary group which claims to be Christian, which doesn't see it that way, and doesn't see Scripture teaching that. They've added to the Bible other purported revelations of their prophets that, um, that do teach that the Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct beings. So in order to, um, to justify their Christian polytheism, they've got to introduce new scriptures that no other Christians accept. Um, so I think that's another evidence the Bible's quite clear uh, about the oneness of God. Otherwise, why would they need to produce new scriptures that sort of amend that, right? Yeah. right? Um, so, so I think that's fairly clear. And again, theologians and apologists rarely felt the need to defend that, because um, who would think otherwise? Who would think that Christians believe in more than one God? Yeah, it's in the Bible. Yeah, right. Totally. Right. Right. Um, kind of backtracking a little bit, you were talking about like the gold statues and kind of the divineness of of yeah. the three beings. And so, Christians, I've I've heard a lot, will come up with metaphors like uh, the Trinity is like a three leaf clover, three leaves, yeah. but one clover or um the water metaphor there's water there's vapor there's ice but they're all h2o right and so like these metaphors all kind of break down at some point and i guess my question within that is are we limited to just metaphors and pulling from several different things to explain this yeah that's kind of been the holy grail of trinitarian theology um Mm -hmm. we start trinitarian theology with saying here's what the bible teaches and again it seems to me that the bible teaches three distinct things that have to be held together. Yeah. We can't, if you deny one of them, then you're doing violence to Scripture, and if you're doing violence to Scripture, um, there's little reason to call yourself a Christian. So we don't want to deny any of them. We want to hold them all together. How do you hold them all together is the next question. Some people want to stop at this point and say, that's what the Bible teaches, let's not speculate any further. But I don't think, and again, um, this hasn't been the history of Christian theology, I just don't think that that's really a possible stop stopping point. People are going to naturally ask, okay, I understand these three things. How do I understand them together? And now we're going to be in the business of trying to find analogies and metaphors to explain it because there's nothing quite like God. There's nothing precisely like God in God and his being. And so um, we want to find something that helps us at least think. What we would call this is a heuristic. A heuristic is something that helps you teaches you to do something else or to think about something else. And so um, metaphors are part and parcel to Trinitarian theologizing. 
And as you mentioned, there's various examples, some of them more popular level, and all of them, if you push them too far, are going to break down. Mm. I don't think that there is just one that is superior to all of them. Mm. Um, that would be great. Traditionally, there are three models, and they all emphasize different aspects. What they do is they take two of the three teachings and are very clear about them and then do their best to incorporate the third. Mm. And so that, so if you take any two of them and then do your best to try to incorporate the th third, you're going to find yourself at one of these three models. And so there are three. Um, the first one emphasizes the oneness of God and the distinction of the Father, Son, and Spirit, and then tries to incorporate how the Father, Son, and Spirit are all equally God. And this metaphor uh, would go back to the most ancient uh, Trinitarian theologians. People like Tertullian and Athanasius would speak of the sun in the sky, you know, the star. Mm. They would um, compare the Father to the star itself, the Son of God to the light rays or the, the sunbeams, and the Holy Spirit to the heat mm. that the sun produces. And so where does the Father end and the Son begin? Where does the Son end and the Son rays begin? It's very blurry. Mm -hmm. They overlap. They're one. So there you have the oneness of God. Um, but there is something greater about the Son than the Sun rays. And these ancient Trinitarians would say that's okay, um, in a sense, because the Father does send the Son. Mm -hmm. The Son is, in his incarnation, obedient to the Father. So there is a sort of subordination to, of the Son. But not a creaturely subordination. He's not a creature created by God. And so um, just like the sun in the sky, I know this is confusing, but the star yeah, yeah. doesn't produce, doesn't decide to create the sun rays. Mm -hmm. it, as long as it's been a star, it's been producing its light. It doesn't decide to produce its radiance. Its radiance just flows from it. So the Son of God flows from the Father. The Father has always been Father eternally. So the, the Son isn't a creature. He didn't begin to exist. The Father didn't one day say, I'd like to have a son. He's always mm -hmm. been Father, and so has eternally had a son. And so that was the first metaphor, and it um, doesn't fully incorporate the full divinity of the Son and Spirit. It might seem that the Son and Spirit are too derivative. So the other metaphor was the one I mentioned, Gregory's metaphor, in which he really emphasizes the full divinity of the Son and Spirit but it seems to kind of hedge a little bit on the oneness of God. And you've mm. got to think in this like blending, melting kind of metaphor to get them all to be one. And then the third metaphor or analogy is a mental one that comes uh, later on from Augustine, the great Western church father in the, um, in the fourth and uh, fifth centuries. He, uh, he says that um, kind of like the sun analogy, the son of God is like the thoughts, like God's thought that, uh, or God's logic that emerges from his mind. Hmm. The Father is the mind, and the Son is his logic. And in fact, the Bible calls the Son the logos, the hmm. Word of God, the logic of God. And so the Father knows himself perfectly. God knows himself perfectly. He knows everything about himself. None of us knows ourselves perfectly. We do things, we think things, and we surprise ourselves. Somebody else tells you something about yourself. If you're married, your wife is going to tell you things about yourself mm -hmm. that she sees that you don't know. Yeah. And uh, so... Is she usually right? Yeah, usually. <laughs> okay. Usually. Um, and with the uh, father, though, there's nothing about himself that he doesn't know. He doesn't surprise himself. He knows himself perfectly. And so his thought of himself is a perfect reflection of what he is. Mm. And so his logos is just him a second time over. And so um, this view emphasizes 
uh, the oneness of God, and the full divinity of the Son, his knowledge of himself doesn't leave out anything that he is. And his love doesn't leave out anything that he, uh, that he is. Um, he loves his Son, the second person of the Trinity, perfectly, and so the full love of God is the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's a kind of a weird metaphor. They're all kind of weird. Mm-hmm. And if um, you take that one too far, you might think that the Father, Son, and Spirit are just different representations or um, aspects of the one God or something like that. And so we don't want to take that one too far. But in any case, those are the three analogies, and I think that the best we can do in Trinitarian theology is understand the biblical teaching and then think through all of the analogies. And when we get pulled too far away into one analogy, use another analogy to kind of pull us back to the mm-hmm. center. So we have sort of a trinity of analogies to describe the trinity. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think that's true. Wow. And I think those are all the best analogies that we have, those three. Some, sometimes people say, well, is there a better one, like the three-leaf clover? I think that is a really deficient version of Gregory's mm. three statues analogy. Yeah. Um, sometimes that way of thinking, like uh, three-leaf clover... The problem there is that um, each leaf we might consider a part of the full clover, Yeah. right? The Father is not a part of God. The Son is not a part of God. I call this uh, Voltron theology. <laughs> um, I was thinking of changing it to Power Rangers theology because I, I realized <laughs> I was a kid in the 1980s, and so that was Voltron uh, time, and you guys were kids in the uh, 90s and early 2000s, and that's Power Rangers time. But Voltron, I just found out, has made a comeback. So, oh, yeah, totally. Okay, I yeah. didn't know that. It's so, hip now, yeah. Yeah. Yep. So it, if you know either one of those, Voltron or Power Rangers, whatever your background is, um, you've got these um, fighting forces that operate different um, robots, and they individually fight kind of as a team, but then um, at the end they fight um, a, a seemingly you know, uh, unconquerable enemy, and so they unite mm. to form a larger, greater um, fighting uh, machine. And so what was, um, what was one fighting ship now becomes a leg, and another one becomes the arm, and the other one becomes a torso, and they, f- they make this mega robot. Well... God, with a capital G, is not sort of a mega-being made up of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Mm. The Father is everything that God is. The Son is everything that God is. And so they're not parts. And so that can be—some of these can be more misleading, Mm. some of these analogies, than others. Definitely. Um, What uh, about—one question that has always kind of been in the back of my mind when trying to see the Trinity in Scripture is— in some regards, it almost seems like a New Testament thing. Uh, is there anything that we can find in the Old Testament where we see Father, Son, and Spirit uh, representative? Because, like we already mentioned, the Shema, the mm-hmm. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. There seems to be, at least at first glance, a very uh, monotheistic, like yeah. uh, deeply monotheistic view of God in yeah. the Old Testament and the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, I guess just kind of unpack that. What, where would you say that we could find the Yeah, well, the even on top of that, mm-hmm. um, some have said that in the creation narrative that the book begins with the Trinity. Yeah. Uh, verse 1, 2, and 3, God created, the Spirit hovered, then there was light. People have used that analogy as Trinitarian thought. Is that faithful or... 
Yeah, we can't take it too far um, and overemphasize it, but these things do seem to indicate to me a um, diversity even within the one God. Mm. It is certainly more veiled in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, um, and it is more revealed in the New Testament and the Greek Bible, and we should expect that it would be more revealed because Jesus Christ comes to reveal the Father, mm. and so... We, you, you cannot know God in the fullest salvific sense apart from the testimony and teachings of Jesus. And so um, there's a prophetic witness of it that sort of precedes that and gives veiled, shadowy hints to that. I don't think there's anything in the Hebrew Scriptures that preclude Trinitarianism. Um, and so as you were mentioning in the creation narrative, we see already... Um, the, as you said, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. Mm-hmm. The first question would be, wait, who's the Spirit of God? Yeah. Is that God? Is that God's force? Um, it seems as if we could interpret it as God's creative act or, or God himself. We also see this weird figure in Genesis, the angel of the Lord. Mm. The angel of the Lord comes and speaks, and um, as you read through Genesis, you realize that he doesn't act like other angels, not as a mere emissary. He speaks as God. Even Hagar, uh, you remember um, Abraham's concubine, yeah. she's sent out, and um, at one point the, the angel of the Lord comes to console her, and she says, I have seen God and yet have not died. I'm paraphrasing, but she says something yeah. like that. She saw the angel of the Lord, and she says that she's seen God. Or um, also in Genesis, the man who wrestles with Jacob. You know, yeah. um, This is a emissary of God, someone who is some way distinguished from God. It doesn't just say God, it says the angel of the Lord. But yet, again, he speaks as God. He's got God's authority. Um, these are very strange things. We, we have yeah. to admit, yeah. right? If, if, totally. if we only had Genesis, we'd say, who is this God? This is odd. Also, you have that very famous um, statement um, in Genesis 1, where, where God says, let us make man in our image. Yeah. Uh, who is he speaking to? Uh, not the angels. Uh, humans are not made in the image of angels. We're quite different than angels. Yeah. Um, there are no other gods with, with, with whom he's speaking. So let us make God in our image is a very cryptic sort of statement. It's sort of like God's internal thinking. Um, and we often have um, this sort of plurality. Um, you'll get a plural noun with a singular verb. Um, in, in Hebrew. We don't all often read that in the English translation, but the name for, for God in the Hebrew Bible is actually gods. Elohim is gods. Mm. And that might seem to indicate polytheism, but it always goes with a singular verb. Yeah. And so the verb indicates one actor or speaker, one subject, but yet that one subject is addressed plurally. So these are all, again, very cryptic things. Um, and we have... Uh, some mention of, of God's Son and of God's Spirit all throughout the Old Testament. And um, when it speaks of God's Son, often it seems to be foreshadowing this Messiah, this Savior, this King over Israel that he will send and have a particular relationship with. But God's Son is sometimes spoken of in ways that you can't speak of uh, a, a human. In Isaiah, God's Son is, is referred to um, as uh, the King of Kings. Mm the everlasting Father, the Lord of Lords, the everlasting Father. I mean, what human do we regard in this way, do we speak of in this way? So, um, again, I think it's all foreshadowing. It's certainly not as clear as the New Testament, yeah. but it de- and it, it definitely doesn't preclude it. Interesting. 
Yeah, that's really good to know because, yeah, a lot of people are, like, seeking where is the Trinity in the Old Testament. When Jesus comes and is born into, is incarnated, it's pretty evident. And then the Spirit ascends on him when he uh, gets baptized. And so it's introduced. But in the Old Testament, it's really hard to articulate. Right. Um, I have another question for you. Um, Something kind of more practical for our everyday lives. Um, How do we practice a balanced view of the Trinity in our lives. What, what I mean by this is, take uh, prayer, for example. Right. Who do we pray to? Is it faithful to pray to our Father, like mm-hmm. Jesus modeled? Um, or or is it wrong to, to begin our prayers by saying Jesus? Mm-hmm. Um, or even to the Holy Spirit? What's faithful? Um, how can we practice this balanced view of the Trinity? Yeah, as you mentioned, uh, kind of the biblical model for prayer, the apostles ask, Jesus, how should we pray? And he says, pray in this way. And he starts off by saying, our Father who art in heaven. So that's um, kind of the practical model. But is it a strict rule? Is it wrong to say, Lord Jesus? It doesn't seem to even be biblically wrong to say, Lord Jesus. Remember, Stephen, as he's mm-hmm. being stoned in Acts, um, speaks to to Jesus um, as he's being stoned. And so it doesn't seem wrong to to use that name. Less common is to say uh, Holy Spirit, but I don't see that as being unorthodox or wrong in any way, because if we're emphasizing that the Holy Spirit is the one true God, God in us, whereas Jesus is God with us, um, there wouldn't seem to be any problem. And so maybe some Christians take it that maybe the situation dictates um, who we're addressing, we don't want to fall into polytheistic worries. Mm. Polytheistic worries, um, you know, in the ancient world, um, your crops burn. And you wonder, why did this happen? And someone else said, well, did you venerate all the gods? You say, I think so. It's like looking at your bills. Did you pay all the bills? <laughs> and you go through and you say, oh, shoot, I forgot to venerate <laughs> Zeus and he hit my field with a lightning bolt. I mm. completely slipped my mind. I paid all the other bills and then, you know, mm. and they turn off the lights or something. Um, if we're praying to the Lord Jesus, we have not left out the Father and Spirit. We haven't left them out because the Father and Spirit are fully resident within the Lord Jesus. Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Mm. In fact, when he breathed on them in John 20, he said, receive my Holy Spirit, as if the Holy Spirit is actually coming out of him. Mm. But at the same time, the Holy Spirit doesn't just come out of Jesus. Jesus himself came in the Spirit. The Spirit sent Jesus into the world. They are fully in each other. So in polytheism, you can venerate Zeus and fail to venerate Poseidon. You can't do that in Christian theology. You cannot pray to our Father who is in heaven and leave out the Son, Jesus. The Son is eternally resident in his bosom. Because he's eternally Father, his Son is in him and resident in him, even, in a sense, genetically in him. Um, The Spirit is his Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. Mm. He's never without his Spirit. So when we've loved and adored the Father, we have done so in the Spirit, um, with Jesus, um, and we have adored and venerated the Spirit and the Son. And likewise, um, when we venerate the Son, we are venerate the Father Father and Spirit. So in Christian theology, I think if we want to talk about the Father, we need to start by talking of, of the Son and Spirit. You can't speak of them independently. If we want to talk about the Son, you have to start by talking about the Father and Spirit. That's how we understand them. And so, um, we just want to avoid those polytheistic worries and know that we are speaking to the one God. Yeah, so so 
are you saying in a sense that when we speak to Jesus directly, we are sort of by definition also speaking to the father and the spirit directly? Mm -hmm. Or is it more like, um, you know, God, father and Holy spirit, hear my prayer (laughs) kind of thing. Yeah. Sometimes you see in historical theology, um, people speaking of the Trinity. We're saying Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, like the Catholic cross thing. Right. Yeah. Enumerating all of those. Um, it I doesn't strike me that there's anything immediately wrong with that either. Um, sometimes I will open a prayer kind of in that way, and um, I'll pray, you know, um, my Father in heaven, um, in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and by means of your Holy Spirit, to emphasize that there is one God, the Father, and I know him as he's revealed himself in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and in his indwelling presence in my life in the Holy Spirit. And so I I emphasize all of those things. Um, But if I were to just say, Father, I don't think there would be anything deficient about that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... Those are all kind of Christian ways of praying, and they do emphasize different aspects of uh, of our theology about God. So I think they're all um, they're all beneficial mm-hmm. and, and all have their appropriate place. Um, but given Jesus's model, not to not to make a rule, but given Jesus's model, I do prefer to start off with uh, with Father. Mm-hmm. Um, Again, because Jesus said, this is how you ought to pray. Yeah. And again, that doesn't mean that we have to have a sort of... It's not clear that Jesus is saying a strict rule, and if you deviate from this, you're in the wrong. But maybe that's the normative way. In other words, the normal way. That's the best way to help us think clearly about God. Mm. But it's not unfaithful if you call out Holy Spirit. It doesn't seem to me. I can't think of a reason why it would be unfaithful. Wow. Sounds good, yeah. Yeah, the the three oneness of God. Right. Yeah. That's beautiful. Well, thank you so much for for taking time out of your day to to sit in with us and talk about something as, like, important and also sometimes esoteric as uh, Trinitarian theology. Um, But, yeah, I think that it's a very beneficial conversation to be having in the church. It seems to be, like... A doctrine that people just kind of put on the back burner to kind of i don't want to have to think about that puzzle piece right <laughs> thing. right or they say they understand it mm-hmm. and they use it in in their prayers and that sort of stuff but really don't yeah. understand it right that can that can certainly happen yeah but uh again thank you uh so much for this conversation i've personally found it to be uh fascinating i feel like i've learned things yep. in, a, in a way i feel good. like i'm i'm back in class and oh good good <laughs> and, to hear <laughs> and studying things so um thank you so much and uh you know anytime you want to come back on the show and talk about other things we'd love to have we you. would love to have you i'd so. love to thank you very much okay. yeah great. Alrighty. Well, uh you, you've been listening to the soma podcast uh my name is zach my name is rob and uh we're here with uh professor uh, sanjay merchant of moody bible institute Thank you so much. Take care.